everyone. I'm talking today with Barry Casey. Uh, Barry, uh, you have a, a doctoral degree from Claremont, uh, and you have taught religion, philosophy, ethics, communication to college and graduate students for over 37 years. I, Barry, I have enjoyed your uh, frequent contributions as a columnist in Spectrum magazine, but most recently, you have published uh, with uh, with uh, and stock the book Wandering Not Lost: Essays on Faith, Doubt, and Mystery. And uh, I am just so excited to plunge into that book with you. Welcome, Barry. Thank you, Skip. I'm glad to be here. Uh, this book is pretty new off the press and is a collection of your reflections and essays over some time. Uh, it, it's kind of a collected journey. Can you share with us some of your personal spiritual journey and how, you know, the uh, integration of this collection uh, that Wandering Not Lost contains relates to your own life story? Um, yes, I am a product of a religious background. Um, I was raised by my grandparents. My grandfather was from Yorkshire. My grandmother was from Vancouver Island. And uh, so I grew up in the church. Um, I think I always had questions, as most young people do. Um, but when I first went to England, I went to Newbold College near Windsor. Uh, that really opened up a lot of things for me. It was my first time to be out in the world and uh, just seeing something quite different. Um, I began to uh, open up to just a lot of questions. I remember being down in, in uh, Hyde Park at, at uh, Speaker's Corner uh, when I first got to England and being very enthusiastic and uh, witnessing for Christ, I turned to two men who were standing there and started to witness, you know, this is in the early 70s and uh, the Jesus movement was pretty strong in California where I was living and uh, they just shut me down within moments <laughs> mm -hmm. because yes uh, you know because they I I was basing everything I said on the Bible and they didn't accept the Bible so that really set ah. me back on my heels yes <laughs> um, <laughs> you know so and then through the years as I nurtured my writing, uh, it was mostly directed towards, you know, my teaching and so forth. But um, I picked up from Joan Didion this idea that you write to find out what's in your head. Uh. <laughs> and that, in fact, is kind of the subtitle for my blog, Dante's Woods. Um, writing to find out what I think. And right there is a kind of sense of humility and i think mm -hmm. i grew up with that uh, you know from my grandparents uh, from my teachers um, i picked up something from thomas merton he says um, it's almost impossible to overestimate the value of true humility and its power in the spiritual life and mm -hmm. i certainly found that to be true um, so you know i think i was surrounded with 
good people as I was a teenager. I had great friends, very literary friends. Um, uh, my grandparents were certainly role models for me. Um, I had good teachers. And uh, it just kind of gave me a, a sense of safety. And that if I went outside that bubble or that cocoon, I would be all right. And, um, and that's what I found, too, in my wandering. <laughs> mm. Now, <laughs> there are many people who, in the process of maturing in questions regarding belief, meaning, life, uh, don't go through that difficult, complicated process. Uh, I, I hear you grateful that you went through that process, almost grateful that there at uh, that corner in Hyde's Park, the speaker's area, somebody confronted you and said, think about this. We don't, we, we don't believe in God the way you do. We don't believe in scripture. You're preaching at us in, in this way. You're, you're grateful for that. Yes, yes, I am. Uh, because it really, it opened me up to realize that there are many different perspectives towards religion and towards God in this world. And I had only come up with a very narrow sliver of all of that. And uh, I, you know, I had the sense that um, there was much more beyond what I knew. And so it kind of gave rise to what I've always called an epistemological humility. <laughs> you know, there's so much we don't know and there's a lot that we don't know that we uh, mm. can find out. Mm. But then there's also a great deal that we will never find out. Yes. And, uh, and that shapes our lives, too. In, in Wandering Not Lost, you often reflect on the contribution of a uh, wide range, really, of people thinking about life. Thomas Merton, Karen Armstrong, Walter Brueggemann, some of the names I had familiarity with and have read, others not. Uh, but it's how do you equate uh, the contribution they make in your life to the contribution of what some in their Christian heritage and journey structure as the sure foundation of the Word of God. It, it's like you're, you're hesitant to not uh, have an umbrella large enough to take in all the human experience. Uh, am, I, am I kind of missing the point in that? Uh, I've found so many people writers, speakers, uh, preachers even, that have contributed mm -hmm. so much to my, my life over the years. Uh, Thomas Merton, you know, again, on faith and on finding God in the ordinary. Um, Karen Armstrong, in her book about religions, uh, she, she discovered that at the heart of all the major religions is compassion. Mm. Um, Walter Brueggemann, Prophetic Imagination, that's the title mm -hmm. of one of his books. Mm -hmm. uh, Abraham Heschel, The Idea of Wonder and Awe. Um, and there's a whole group of 
poet priests, Anglicans in uh, England that I've really come to appreciate. Uh, Michael Main, who has passed away now, but he was the Dean of Westminster. Uh, Rowan Williams, who is Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, Mark Oakley. Um, these people have learned to integrate their love for scripture and their faith in Christ with uh, an appreciation for art and literature and drama. Uh, and you see that in their writing. And, you know, I aspire to, <laughs> to reach the, the areas that they are in. Um, yes. I, I suppose if we approach the uh, experience we have with humility than the need to qualify or judge uh, retreats to the background and we simply say, what can we understand, learn about God, life, meaning? How, how does this reflection um, relate to a construction of the world for me? Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, I, I want to share with you a, uh, something that, that you uh, wrote fairly early in your manuscript, uh, your collection of Wandering Not Lost. By the way, folk, um, <laughs> there are any number of essays in the book that themselves, if just standing alone, are worth the price of your um, spending a good day with this book. This is, each of these essays is a blessing, but I'm just going to pick from a few of them. In, in one place you write that the wandering motif runs against our linear, goal-driven, deadline-clutching lifestyle and while there may be a place for all of that, there can also be time for unfettered curiosity and the blessedness of wandering without necessity or obligation. Try it sometime. I, I think I'm paraphrasing, but then you say, try it sometime. Take a stroll through the Gospels or the Prophets or the Psalms, finding a text that lights up the imagination and following its references and associations until you reach a place you've not been to before. I, I found that just a challenging reflection. How, how do you describe the contribution of the work in these essays to a person who um, uh, is struggling with the ideas of meaning of faith and spirituality, looking for more concreteness. You know, some in their struggle say, show me a sure foundation that is absolutely clear to me, that makes it obvious. And while you're, you're uh, uh, advocating a sense of wonder and imagination. Right. Um, well, for me, the Bible is my backdrop, my background, uh, my foundation. Um, but there's so many other ways that we can comprehend and apprehend 
what the scriptures are saying. And so that's why I've, I felt free and safe to travel amongst these other authors, for example. Um, but especially as I approach the Bible, uh, and this is more the case in the last 10 years, I would say, for myself, not to first go to a commentary, but just to read the text and to think about it and to let it become part of my, uh, my imagination. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is that we often approach the Bible or other kinds of scriptures from the point of we want information. Mm -hmm. And with that information, we might defeat our enemies or, <laughs> you know, in some way win an argument or, uh, you know, use this information to bolster ourselves or, or you know, more safely or more uh, positively to change our lives. So that's one aspect that the Bible does give us information. But the other side of that is imagination. And I think as we approach these stories, particularly as we think our way into the parables or the stories of Jesus' uh, healings or and his interaction with the people he came across, that we need to have an active and lively imagination. Mm -hmm. And for example, when I was in grad school, uh, one of my professors said, when you read a parable of Jesus, where do you stand? And he assumed that we stood right next to Jesus, you know, looking out at the crowd and thinking we were on the right side. We were safe. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't the target of the, of the parable. He said, you've got to stand in the audience and let this come to you and grapple with the puzzlement and the bewilderment and the, the, the joy <laughs> and the, uh, exaltation that you feel when you 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 get it and then you go away and you think about it some more and a month or a year or a decade later there'll be more in that parable uh i mean they're they're just an, a, a bottomless well yeah. and all of that i think comes through our imagination um, so wonder and imagination um this quality of reflection uh, academically you might um, also put right in that context thinking ration yes. those are all uh, gifts of god rather than in opposition to finding that concreteness in understanding right that's yeah. that's a good way to say it well, i think that's where the spirit comes in ah Ah, I, I really, uh, moving forward a bit in the collection in Wandering Not Lost, we're talking with Barry Casey, if you joined us late, uh, and his book, Wandering Not Lost by uh, Whiff and Stock. There, there's this essay that I found really meaningful of a collection of people that you, over some years, have formed relationship with oh, and, you know uh, the conversation we've had for the past quarter hour uh, I keep thinking of the word relationship and and you uh, 
have had an ongoing over years relationship with a group, people moving in and out of it, of course, who share Christian faith, other faith, or no faith, uh, doubters, we could say, uh, and uh, you join together, it seemed like in that 28th uh, essay, I believe it is, you described how each finds strength, growth, and help, uh, health regarding their spirituality in that uh, exchange. And, and you launch, I, I want to read for you, uh, so that all of us in this conversation uh, now can get a sense of that essay, something that you quoted from Wyman to introduce it. There is no clean intellectual coherence, no abstract ultimate meaning to be found. And if, if this is not recognized, then the compulsion to find such certainty becomes its own punishment. <laughs> I, I, wow, I have to think about that a moment. And, it, and Wyman goes on, this realization is not the end of theology, but the beginning of it. I, I find that fascinating uh, to, to actually begin to think about God requires us to divorce ourselves, if we will, from this intellectual dependence of coherence and some concrete foundation that if we, if we have a compulsion towards such certainty, it can hinder that work of theology. I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Did, I... I just uh, appreciate Christian Wyman so much. Uh, he has this slim little volume called My Bright Abyss. And uh, he compiled it in sort of fragments over a number of years. And uh, it has just come to mean so much to me. And, and you, uh, you assert uh, uh, that in that, community of believers and doubters that meets with some regularity, uh, the possibility that each of us as humans in this experience can be both at the same time believers and doubters. And that that realization is in some way liberating. Oh, yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You even call it a devotional doubt. <laughs> yes, yes. And you describe it as humility um, and that creativity and imagination. Um, I, I just found that uh, essay to be so meaningful. Oh, good, good. Thank you. Uh, the, the phrase... Uh, devotional doubt I took from Christian Wyman mm -hmm. uh, because he mentions that uh, in a quote that I I have at the end of that essay um, honest doubt what I would call devotional doubt is marked by three qualities humility 
uh, insufficiency, which makes it impossible uh -huh. to rest, and mystery, which continues to tug you upward, or at least outward, even in your lowest moments. Oh, man, that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. It really is. Uh, that helps us understand uh, that whole... See, I, I've never been one comfortable with the idea that God is behind human suffering in order that the human can progress in their spirituality. I've been far more able to find a sense of peace with the awareness that in suffering, as suffering is experienced, God can be alongside us for those purposes. Uh, and that we can learn our own insufficiencies, our own condition in the process, and that God then transitions grace and giftedness out of the suffering. So that's very helpful. Yes, that's right. I, I, I feel that way too. Uh, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Barry, um, uh, you talk a lot about scripture narratives in the in the book and in your essays. It seems that your Christian faith is very strong, but you constantly assert that doubt is the companion, not the enemy of faith. Uh, what do you say to someone who uh, uh, cannot uh, adopt a triumphant program of fact-sharing or certainty perhaps to be evidence of authentic uh, discipleship? So um, you, have, you have a conversation with a person who just says, I can't have anything to do with religion because it has this aspect of triumph where everything is always roses and we understand and know everything. I can't have anything more to do with that. What, what do you say to them when you're in a casual conversation? Yes. Um, well, the first line of uh, one of Buddha's scriptures, if I can just diverge for a moment, is life is suffering. And when I taught world religions and I said that, students would always shake their heads. No, life's not suffering. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. This is a good world. But what Buddha meant was not that every moment is filled with grief, but that the world is incomplete and it breaks <laughs> and yes. we get broken. And that, I think, is what Jesus understood so clearly. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the cross, I do not see someone uh, being sacrificed so that God can have his pound of flesh. Mm -hmm. I see someone who has taken on himself the full human experience mm -hmm. and has not dodged any of it. You know, he's not trying to get away. He's taking it, and in that, he has given himself over to God, uh, not knowing what the outcome will be. Mm. When Jesus says on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not performing. He's not, uh, that's not uh, reading a script. I think that's coming from his heart. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And, and to me, that's just uh, comprehensive of the human experience. We do feel forsaken and alone. And uh, uh, to know that God, that Jesus is walking by our side, uh, C.S. Lewis said, maybe he's in a parallel universe right next to us, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, well, that's interesting. In your vocational service, you often speak to the ethics of leadership and people who examine leadership who have faith in Christ come to tension and confrontation with the nature of Jesus as servant. And you're describing the cross as an outcome of uh, love and service, that power confronts love and service with this desire to destroy the love, destroy the service, so that power would um, prevail. Um, I, I, I am impressed in uh, several of your es- essays with that sense that um, rather than trying to explain suffering, you describe our response to suffering being service. Yes. The worth of our, in one place you write, the worth of our striving can be measured by the degree to which we act with compassion toward those who are suffering and wisdom toward those who bring the suffering. Yeah. Now, how can you help me, Barry, when I get angry at, with those who bring the suffering? <laughs> <laughs> well, I get angry too, and all of us do and probably should. Yeah. Uh, I think that essay was in the context of talking about mass shootings uh, ah. that came up. And, you know, there have been so many of them that, that we're almost inured to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I wrote my dissertation on, on suffering and on evil uh, and hope. And what I discovered is that uh, trying to build a theodicy that is a justification for evil in the face of God, um, that you can't build a universal theodicy that will uh, appeal to everybody in all times, places, and cultures. Um, It may seem self-evident, but I had to discover that suffering is local. that my suffering is not somebody else's, but we both share in the fact that we suffer. Yes. yes. So it's both suffering and, uh, is local and universal. Uh-huh. And uh, I talked to uh, Dorothea Sula, who was, a, who was a German Protestant professor who came to this country for a lecture series, and I had quoted her in the dissertation. And so as I was researching and writing, I got a chance to meet her. And one thing she said, she wrote a book called Suffering. uh, And it was interesting to notice how uh, she took into account everybody's suffering. She was herself a socialist uh, and had written a lot about uh, the excesses of the rich. But she said, rich people suffer too. 
which again seems self-evident, but we don't often think about it. Powerful people suffer. Celebrities suffer. Um, all of us suffer. And so, you know, what that, what that taught me, what that came across to me is that uh, even though you think you have power, even though you think you can isolate yourself from everybody else through your power, you're still united in the brotherhood of people through suffering. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're all subject to that. Now, it doesn't mean that our lives are constant woe and sorrow, but it just means that we understand that we are incomplete, that we're finite, that for the most part we're broken. And uh, uh, let's go from there, you know. Um, my grandfather, who was British, as I've mentioned, uh, was short. He was about 5'5", five, five, something like that. And a very gentle man. Uh, but man, he was tough. Um, you know, I've seen him go through physical suffering and, and spiritual suffering and just endure, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very sensitive, but he was tough tough fellow <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not sure I've gotten to your question or oh no that's <laughs> that's, that's fine that's helpful Barry uh, this conversation leads me to want to figure out uh, how I can contribute and perhaps all of us who are part of this conversation ask the same question um, we may be a part of a particular faith body or tradition and aware somewhat frustrated by or very satisfied with the issue of organized uh, religion uh, how helpful is organized religion in our journey to find peace grace hope a relationship with God in life is and if 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 we come alongside those who are a part of our faith journey and tradition uh, what do we say to them about that it is organized religion helpful if it is for an individual great or if it if it is possibly hurting many? How do we go about addressing that? Do you have any thoughts on that, Barry? Yeah. Um, I used to do an exercise with my students in religion classes. I would say, what is the most inclusive category you can think of as relates to human beings? Mm -hmm. uh, and this was in a parochial setting, you know, a, a, a religious college. Christian believers for the most That's part. That's right. Yeah. And um, it would take them a while, but eventually someone would say, being human. And I would say, bingo, that's it. You know, that's the most inclusive category. And then we go from there, and it turns out that religion is fairly far down the list. Um, so in my case, uh, religion was formative and for the most part, positive but it wasn't definitive and you know for that i go back to being human finding out what it is to be human 
And as a Christian, I come at that question, you know, from scripture and from other sources. Uh, but to me, I see no uh, conflict, no ultimate conflict between becoming fully human and becoming a person who trusts in God. Uh, now, uh, Barry, you, you have some strong language <laughs> in one paragraph in the book. And uh, I think it's um, in the art of being heard, we're careful to not offend. Your art in writing is not offensive. There are moments, though, that we need to say, ah, we need to take this to heart. <laughs> and I found one paragraph that I had to stop and say, ah, we need to take this to heart. The beauty and the art of your writing found a little sharpness in this mm. assertion. Let, let me read it. The other way hope and imagination can be snuffed out is through dogmatism. You, you had been talking about the risks of cynicism. Yes. And then you say the other way, hope and imagination can be snuffed out is through dogmatism. If cynicism is the certainty that there is no meaning, then dogmatism is the certainty that meaning doesn't matter. Dogmatism, especially in theological matters, is a might-makes-right argument for religious authoritarianism by reducing faith to uniformity of assent. Dogmatism closes off the possibility of new life, present truth, and new understanding springing up. Ah, that's... That's pretty strong language. If I, <laughs> if I am one who has journeyed through a fairly uh, clear, concrete, traditional history, of which there are myriads of uh, faith traditions out there who have, I have to come up short and I have to say, oh my, is my relationship with God actually... Mm, held in check or made less, and now I'm trying to be artful and trying to say it less directly, <laughs> by dogmatism. Okay, can, talk to me a little bit more about this. Yeah, it seems to me that dogmatism is the willingness on our part to accept somebody else's word for a spiritual experience, and that word coming to us in the form of of power and authoritarianism. Ah, ah. so you, now, now that hold, hold that thought for a moment, Barry. So <laughs> you're saying that we replace authentic spiritual life and journey with a dogmatism and that kind of, oh, that satisfies and now I can go on type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Go so ahead. now I don't have to think about it anymore ah. because some religious authority has told me this is what you are to believe. This is what works <laughs> this will get you to heaven yeah. and uh now i can go back to my life you know uh, i don't think it's that way and uh so i think in that sense when we turn uh it, it's secondhand spiritual experience 
You know, it's relying on somebody else's firsthand experience, and that may go back almost 2,000 years now, uh, and then get passed down. And because of the power of, of religious authorities, uh, it bypasses one's first order primary experience and just is imposed on us. Uh -huh. and, uh, and we never really understand why we're believing it. We certainly don't feel touched by it. Uh, it never calls us into question. Uh, the only question it raises is, am I going to obey this person or not? You know, um, It replaces relationship, doesn't it? Exactly, yes. Now, uh, I would imagine people sometimes uh, say to you, your work, and they've probably said this to you for decades, but now they would say, your work just reflects the postmodern, post-Christian environment in which we live, and you're catering to that culture. How do you respond to that? Well, it, uh, it, it's kind of like the person who was astonished to find out they were speaking prose. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I'm in a postmodern environment, but I had not really stopped to think about that I might be reflecting it, but I, it's in the air, you know, it's in our environment. And uh, so I am trying to come to grips with it. And so I find myself on the boundary, uh, on the border, if you like. Um, that's something I picked up from Paul Tillich, who has a, a book by that name on the boundary and he felt himself and i feel myself to be on the boundary between say religion and the world you know or uh between religion and politics or um religion and ethics any any kind of thing where you've got forces that are coming together uh that that call people to a decision I find myself not one way or the other, but between them, and in some way trying to speak across that boundary uh, to to people on the other side. So to straddle that boundary is um, difficult sometimes, but for me it seems to be the only way that I can find a place mm -hmm. to to stand. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Your belief system, it seems to me, is grounded in um, allowing word. And uh, throughout your book, I find confidence, uh, um, a reflection of confidence in Scripture, not from a fundamentalist or neo-fundamentalist viewpoint, but a sense that God is a God of love who reaches out and enters into relationship with us. But your faith and belief in God seems to be grounded in those moments in which you allow words to work in your soul and invite God to use those words. Uh, the uh, reflection, meditation, thinking, would you, do you want to say, uh, you know, Barry, as we as we come to a uh, end of this conversation, how would you describe the ongoing grounding of your faith? Uh, well, again, it is 
in, I think it begins in wonder and awe. Uh, that's come to mean a lot to me. So I, I, I get a lot from poetry, for example, um, in that regard. And so I think that I approach all of that from the sense of what can I learn and what can touch me and what, uh, what is it, what is there in me that uh, is covering up what is there to be seen? Um, There's a sentence that, uh, Barry, if I can um, invite us in the conversation to just, in uh, the conversation with this reflection you offer that you write on page uh, 57, God has a multitude of ways, multitude of ways to meet us in unexpected places and to reveal the moments of grace we need in the midst of the mundane, the sublime, and the tragic. That's the wonder, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Barry, thank you so much for spending this time in conversation with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Skip. <laughs> this is Skip Bell. Thanks, uh, everyone, for listening and joining in the conversation with Barry Casey. Again, his uh, newest work, Wandering, Not Lost, Essays on Faith, Doubt, and Mystery. Get a hold of it. Spend time with it. Think about it. Tremendous contribution.